Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm Ed Krasnick, my co host Jennifer Kalari, coming along shortly. And this is the show where we talk about mental health issues. I don't like the word issues, but we talk about mental health, we talk about mental fitness. We also practice skills because mental health is a practice, let's face it. Even if we don't want to face it, it is a true thing. You can do anything, and it can take a second, it can take a moment, and it can change your whole outlook. And we have choices about that. We have choices about how we deal with our thoughts and feelings. Not me, but you. You have choices. Today's show, we're going to be very lucky. We're, We're talking with a very funny comedian, a bilingual comedian who has been on Netflix, has been on HBO, has been on Comedy Central, has worked at just about every club I can think of. Uh, Very funny. And that's Richard Villa. Richard will join us shortly. We're going to talk a little bit about parenting. We're going to talk a little bit about relationships and the one with yourself and the one with all the other people in your life. I have no idea why I'm speaking so softly, but I kind of like it. So uh, I'm probably sitting on a mountain of emotion myself. I'm the king of Emotion Mountain. Today's show is brought to you by Disney's Dysfunctional Family on Ice. The greatest Olympic-level skaters navigating poor communication with great moves, dancing, singing, and frozen emotions just under the surface. Tinkerbell is an oppositional teenager. Mary Poppins is a practically perfect therapist. Olaf is a people pleaser. Let it all go at Disney's Dysfunctional Family on Ice. And we always like to welcome people no matter what emotional state they're in. Here are emotional shout-outs. If your therapist suggests playing Name That Tune as a way to guess what you're feeling, welcome. If you went to Angel Stadium and were there for Anthony Fauci bobblehead night, welcome. If you're using Dr. Death podcast as white noise to fall asleep by, welcome. If you've made up a new yoga pose called Downward Spiral, welcome. If you've tried the new Lucky Charms with Echinacea to prepare for the latest surge, welcome. If you refer to your couple's counseling session as an inconvenient truth, welcome. And if you include inaction figures while playing with your kids, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. Now it's time once again for the soothsayer of serotonin, for the ninja of the neocortex, and for the master, the mistress of the medulla oblongata, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, uh, welcome to the program. And how are you doing? Now, Mother's Day yesterday. Yes. How did you celebrate? And is Mother's Day a, a big holiday for you? It was. We had a wonderful day. It was fantastic. Just nice day with family, lots of meals and presents, and I didn't have to do any work at all. It was fabulous. That sounds absolutely perfect. When you're a therapist, is there extra pressure on you to be an amazing mom? Well, especially because I'm a parenting expert. So <laughs> Yeah, you've got a lot of pressure. You've got a lot of heat on you. I would say yes. My kids remind me of that, and you're a parenting expert. Yeah, that comes up. Um <laughs> But yeah, you know what? I think I think the best part is to realize it's it's not that things go wrong. It's how you handle things when they go wrong. That's the most important thing. You know, when people are in a relationship, they they always think about the other person. 
and rarely about themselves. And when I say people, I'm talking about me. (laughs) How do you come back to yourself? How do you get this light bulb that goes off in your head and sort of says, wait a minute, this is probably something about me. So you mean when you're in a, what, like the cup, when the couple's in a session together? Yeah. Well, that's an interesting one because I call it ping pong or table tennis. So when yeah. often when a couple comes into my office, they're quite convinced that I'm going to, you know, take their side and tell the other person how wrong they are. Most people come in absolutely convinced that that's going to be what happens. And most of the session, it's trying to convince me of, you know, how the other person is so wrong. And then I could literally just step out of the session because there it sort of goes like, well, you know, you do this. Well, I wouldn't do that if you didn't do this. Well, I only do that because you did this. And what about the time when you did that? And it's just sort of back and forth and back and forth. And what I want to remind people when they're in therapy or when they're not in therapy and they're just having, um, trying to have uh, meaningful conversations with each other is you can't change the other person ever, 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 ever. You can only uh, change yourself. So the way to get through that is to ask yourself, if my spouse has a problem, then what's my contribution to that problem? Not, not that it's all my fault, but what, what am I doing that's contributing to my partner feeling that way around me? And that's really the only way you can get anywhere. And if you're not, if you can't do that, then it's, you're going to waste your time in couples therapy anyway. So you have to go back. And, and do people need rules uh, in uh, with communication, with regard to communication when you're, I mean, it doesn't really, without like conscious stuff and actually making choices, communication is is tough. I mean, and if you don't have rules about like how you, if you don't actually, if you're not able to actually practice it, and yeah, I don't know hard. where people practice it other than therapy, Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. I, I mean, sometimes our goal is to learn how to argue, like to actually learn how to have a healthy robust argument and not like a breakout screaming fight. That's a skill learning how to argue. And sometimes with couples that I work with, I mean, their homework is literally not to talk about big things until they come back to therapy and until we kind of you know hold it for the week. And then we sort of go through it together in a really safe environment, but mm. it's challenging. It, it really is. What kind of skills do, do you teach people or what kind of skills would you teach someone to be aware of how they're coming across and and how to kind of, you know, just, just turn a light on themselves so that right. they, they can preemptively make choices. It, it's really hard to do that. People, you know, we've talked about this on the show before too, that people get really invested in their story. My wife always, my husband always, my partner always. And so some of the work before, before even uh, learning to shine the light on yourself is just at least being aware of the story that's repeating constantly in your head and the data you're collecting. Oh, there he goes again. And of course she did that. She always does. And that sort of ranting conversation that we have constantly in our head and the, you know, imaginary fights we have in the shower and when we're driving to work actually fuel what's not healthy about the relationship. So sometimes it's even just recognizing your thought patterns, recognizing the conversation and the voice that's in your head is important. And can you imagine it the way you would want it to be or the way you would, you know, like to experience it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a process to how this is done, but wherever that fits in kind of the the plan, I, I often will have families just think about and imagine whether, you know, it might be family therapy, it might be about their child, it might be about their spouse, and, and or even themselves, just imagining it the way they want it to go. 
And what's so interesting about that is the midbrain, which is the part of the brain that's in charge of fight or flight, it doesn't know what you're imagining, what you're remembering, or what's actually happening to you. So the more you kind of replay it the way you want, you're actually cooling down your whole system and you're quieting that story. You know, imagine, imagine while you're while you're listening to this uh, podcast, uh, imagine that I'm uh, I'm a tall Swedish man, <laughs> and and it may help me or it may help you. But imagination is uh, such a big a big thing because we're thinking the worst anyway. It's yeah. just the natural predisposition we're of the brain to think the worst. What you don't want, yeah, all yeah. the time. So you just sort of flip a switch and start imagining what you do want, or at least thinking about and looking for what you do want. It's not easy to do because this is an ingrained habit for a lot of us, but it's a practice. Look for the good. Look for the good. It's a campaign. We're campaigning on the Look for the Good platform. Well, I want to bring our guest in who is really funny. I was watching his stand-up. It's funny, and it's my favorite kind of comedy because this guy has experienced a lot of trauma. And I want to say it. You know, this is like, I mean, I wrote him a note and he wrote me something back and I was like, really? And it was, uh, yeah. yeah, he's experienced a lot of stuff, worked all, all over the place, all over the channels, all over the streaming networks and live quite a bit all around the country, all around the world. And that's Richard Villa. And Richard, first of all, thanks for being here. And secondly, how, how did you make it? Like, how did you survive all these things? Tell us about your, uh, you know, your comedy and your childhood. The first thing is, tell me what, tell them what you told me on our email. Well, we have a mutual friend, and he he introduced us, and I said, "Well, this, this is great. Mental health is something that a lot of Latinos don't discuss." I take help. I I, I talked to a therapist, and as I was listening to your couples therapy, as I was uh, Jennifer, <laughs> I was listening to you. It's so funny you said that that. Um, the both couples, me and my wife were trying to discuss, we're discussing maybe going to couples therapy because we were having trouble. And, and I was for sure, I was sure. And I couldn't wait to go. And I said, let's do this. And I'm, I'm and now that you're saying this, I'm going like, wow, what a big mistake. I'm so glad we didn't go to couples therapy. We just had more sex. That's all we did. We really just found the system. We really did find the system because I told her, listen, babe, I'm out performing at night. So when I come into the bedroom, if I see the red light on, I know it's sexy time. So I'll take a shower and it's going to happen. If you're too tired, don't turn on, don't turn on the light. I right? love it. Don't turn on so the it's light. a communication <laughs> now. If I, if I show up from work and I'm really tired, but she turned the light on, but I'm really tired, I'll turn it off and go to bed. And she'll go, okay, he was tired last night. I like that. But at least we communicate that way without having to be awkward and say, I want to do it. Right, and without all the emotion and the explaining. No. And yeah, that's no, really neat. She just, very simple. So, so, so do you have like a, so is there like a disco ball uh, for a, a, re, a really no, big no, night? No, <laughs> not just one, one red okay. light. But, but um, I, I got interested in, in therapy and, and going more into it because I had a child and I didn't want to be my father. Because the way I grew up was like, first of all, let's start from the yeah, beginning. Yeah. I sneak, I sneak into this country dressed like Dracula on Halloween day. Wow. My uncle Hugo had <laughs> had these green cards of these kids that didn't look like us, but they figured it out. Him and my dad said, just on Halloween day, teach the kid how to say trick or treat, and we can sneak him in. Wow. And so I, I practice it. I was trick or treat, trick or treat, attend because they tell you you're going to go to a country where you say trick or treat and they're going to give you candy. <laughs> 
and you practice that. You, yeah. You're really excited. So, here I am, October 31st. We ended up in Compton, California. Wow. And uh, wow. wow. We end up, my dad shows up in, in 1988 in Compton with four kids, a wife, and we were staying in, a, in one room, just one room, all of us. And for a month, my dad would work and, and he had no paper, so he would get whatever he could pick up side jobs and stuff like that. So his cousin came over and said, hey, cuz, if you want to do this, I'll get you a house for you and all your kids, but you guys got to sell crack. And my dad's like, I, I don't I don't I don't even speak English. <laughs> and, and his cousin goes, but Richard does. My name is Richard, by the way. I so trust. <laughs> I'm the translator. So at that moment, I became at 10 years old, the translator for my dad when he was going to sell crack. Wow. He said, but I don't I don't know anybody here in Compton. I just got here. He says, your brother's a crackhead. Give him some crack. He will tell everybody in the neighborhood. This is all going down. You're I mean, we're in, in the living room having, I'm a yeah. kid listening to this conversation. Oh, wow. I'm being involved in the corporation, the startup, you could say. Wow. He says, I don't know how to cook crack cocaine. He says, your wife's a great cook. She'll get the hang of this. And we're like, wow, here we go. We started our crack business. So you're just a kid. You don't, you're just in this new country. You're in this new place. You, you, you yeah. don't know. And to you, this is what people do. No, this is what my parents do because they made it very clear that nobody opens their mouth. You understand, we live, we lived under threat since I was ten because we understood what we were dealing with. We were, it, we had to grow up really quick. So, one of the things that my dad realized that there was, we we're calling too much attention because at that time in the eighties and eighty eight, people were getting back cracked pieces of potato stuff like that. Uh, and so my dad was giving quality. He he always thought of of the quality has to be good, and we have to give good service, and we have to be available for our customers, just like any other businessman. So my dad opened up a candy store so he can disguise the fact that we were getting so much foot traffic coming to our house, and I ran the candy store. So and let me tell you, it is much easier, much easier to deal with a crackhead than a five year old that wants a candy. Oh my god! I'm like, what do you want, bro? You got twenty five cents. This you can only buy from here. I don't know. I'm like, move then. The crackhead knows what he wants. Come here, bro. Which one? I got you. Oh. It was much easier dealing with a crackhead than kids. Oh my god! So you had some. You had some training. You had some training. How do you deal with that, like growing up? And like you say, you're going to be a dad. You're a dad now. Your dad was doing the best. Your dad was trying to provide for the family, right? He was doing what he thought he needed to do. Yeah. And, and, and it wasn't. See, a lot of people say that what happened to me as a kid was child abuse. And I tell them, I had a dad in 1988 in Compton. You know how many kids didn't have a dad? Sure. My dad didn't smoke the crack. He sold it to your dad. You understand? My dad was the kind of guy that would say, open the fridge. What do you see in there, mijo? And I would say, a six-pack of beer. I said, no, behind the six-pack, a gallon of milk. He says, that's it. That's a man, mijo. First, take care of your family. Then you can go buy your caca or whatever you want to drink. But first, make sure there's a gallon of milk. So maybe for them, it was child abuse, but I had three hours. and, And maybe I didn't get to play. And maybe I didn't get to go play Little Leagues or anything like that. But I got to sit with my dad and... And it was like we were equals because he understood the responsibility it took for me to sell. Hmm. He understood that he had to give me that responsibility. And I, and I had to grow up. And I was like, OK, fuck it. This is it. Sorry for cursing. That's okay. I'm going to have to have to man up now. Hmm. And and it was that respect that you get, especially coming with f- f- three other brothers and everybody's pulling their weight. And now we finally see money. 
and you're a part of that, it, it's, it, you know, they say it's child abuse, but I, or maybe I'm distorted or maybe the way I see things are different. But yeah. Well, it's the life that you knew, right? That's how you survived yeah. as a family. And I mean, the hard yeah. part, I'm sure, is the secrecy and the everything quiet. Like, that's hard for a kid. You understand at 10 years old, I'm telling people to go F themselves. I'm telling people, get off me. Uncle Hugo is not allowed in the house. I'm disrespecting adults. I hear crying at three in the morning in my window. Mm-hmm. You understand? Like you hear though that at three, four in the morning, we, we open the door because it's it's a crackhead and he's willing to trade something for something. Sure. And my dad never said no. So it was that constant thing. And then and then the threats came. And then yeah. we started getting shot up because the gangs in the hood found yeah. out we were selling. Of course. And, and then that's when it started getting yeah. dangerous. How did you make a transition from that to growing up as a teenager to moving from away from home? Like, how did it all work? Well, it, it this came to an end in 2000. Um, to the, <laughs> this came into an end three years later, I think 90, 91. We ended up going to South Central LA. They shot up the house. Basically, the cribs in the neighborhood found out we were slanging crack cocaine and they came and tried to tax my dad. My dad took out a gun, shot at him, missed. And my mom was like, this is not going to stay like this. Yeah. So they came back. They did a drive-by. And my dad said, that's just a drive-by. They were popular back in 88 and 89. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It was like, it, it happens, babe. Our neighbors are gangsters. So the second time they came around, they stopped the car. And they unloaded an AK and a 45 straight into the house. Mm-hmm. So once that happens and, and the car seat gets hit, my little brother Teddy's in the car seat. My mom's freaking out. And, and that was it. Like my little brother almost got shot. That was that yeah. was it for my mom. When I was 13, she grabbed the stuff. She grabbed money that we had saved up and went to a real estate agent the next day and said, I have, have $150,000 cash. Can you give me a house today? Wow. I said, sure. Wow. That's how yeah. we got out of there. I, I just don't. Uh, this is not. We haven't talked about this on the show before. <laughs> this is a little bit well, different for us. You asked me how what yeah. happened. How did no, I get out? Well, that's what happened. Yeah. The Crips came in. They shut up the house. Yeah. And, well, that, that's trauma right there. And there's still lots of kids yeah. living like that right now. Oh no, it happens every yeah. day. This I'm not. Yeah. I'm not uh, uh, special. This I, I'm, I'm talking to other friends. They're like, yeah, I remember those times. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a, it was a very violent. It was it was violent in a sense where everything had to be taken by force. Everything had to be tough. Like I yes. had to be tough. I couldn't I couldn't be I couldn't be good to people because I understood what cocaine did to them. Sure. I knew that they were manipulating me. So you grow up with that insecurity or always watching your back or going, "What do you want? What angle are you playing?" Sure. Mm. Yeah, it's like a, it's like living in a war. Really, it's a war torn. Yeah, yeah, but but it, it, you they get desensitized. Yeah. It just becomes normal. Like, yeah. yeah. But it's hard, it, but it does live in you, right? Whatever trauma it is. Oh, it yeah. now, now that I go through therapy, now that I talk to people, now that I, I self-reflect, because I, I grew up with a lot of anger, and, and like I had to work out a lot of stuff sure. before my baby got here, because yeah. my, my dad wasn't an angel, and I'm, I'm not telling you he's an angel. He used to hit my mom, like any typical macho man that hits his wife and screams at his kids and all that. His moral, uh, his, his values as a man always stood. There was things that I would never do just because he always instilled in me. He says, I'll never want you to be a thief. Right. Don't ever steal. That's the only thing I ask you to do. Hmm. You can be gay. You can be a drug addict. You can do whatever, but don't you ever steal. Wow. That's it. I was like, okay, I never stole. Hmm. 
I'm not gay either, but but the point is. Wow. <laughs> well, this is really so. Now you're gonna. Mm-hmm. The first thing that you said is you said I'm I'm trying not to be my dad as a parent. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? How do you do that when that's what you know? What what Jennifer was saying. You got to look at yourself. Like I I reflect and I go, am, am I causing this harm? Am I doing this to her? Like me and my wife, we had a big breakthrough the other day because. She tends to do things to me that that make me angry really quick, like like a, almost like mocking or laughing, not not laughing, almost like a, like scolding, scolding. Mm-hmm. That's the word. Mm-hmm. Like you would scold a kid, like like she's scolding me now, and I'm like, listen, we can have a conversation. The reason I get upset is because I always feel like you're scolding me. If you want to know something, if you if you want to ask me something, if you want me to change something, say, can I talk to you? And just tell me, this bothers me a lot. Can, can you please help me in changing this? And I'll do it. I'm not here to hurt you. But if you're just nagging at me every single time, but we never sit down and talk about it, it's never going to get fixed. You're nagging. All it's going to do is get me even more angry. Right. Why don't we just sit down and say, what do you want? Because I don't want you to nag anymore. I do anything for you not to nag. I'll, do, I'll, I'll pay a million dollars for you <laughs> not to nag. But tell me, don't, don't give me hints. Sit down, tell me specifically what you want, and I'll do exactly that. See, but you got to yeah. sit down and you got to tell me. Yeah. That's communication, right? That's all yeah. I ask. No man wants their wife nagging. But if the wife is not going to sit down and tell her husband without nagging, without yelling at him, just sit, let's have a conversation. And because there's something else that she's going to ask for me. Yeah. She's also going to ask that I don't do certain sure. things. Well, and, and behavior, it doesn't matter what it is. Behavior is never the problem. Behavior is a symptom of the problem. Right. Yeah. So being able to get through that and past that, and even from your wife's point of view, what happened in, in her that that got her to the point where she nagging was her only option. Right? And exactly. That's where the change happens. Now, if, but if you tell me that you want me to change that, I am not opposed to that. I'm 100% on board. Let's do it. Yeah. Just so you won't nag. <laughs> it's okay. Because yeah. you're happy and I'm happy, That's right? It's, it's not us losing. Exactly. It's, it's great. Exactly. But I just need to know. I'm not going to guess. Yeah. Because you nag of everything. So I just add it all to the nagging. <laughs> but if you pull me aside and go, hey, this, 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 I really need to talk to you about. Okay. Right. Well, I think you're learning. You're just learning a new way. Obviously, you know, like people learn that from where they come from, right? Yeah, yeah. My dad would have treated it differently. It's funny because my wife will sometimes complain to my mom, and then my mom tells them a story about my dad, and then they go, never mind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The things that happen to you, lady, never mind. We have saints at home. Never mind. Perspective, context. But I mean, the other thing, too, is when you're having a conversation like that, you have to be brave. I mean, you know from brave with your childhood, but truly to look inward and go, okay, like, I want to fix this. You fix this. I'll fix this. You have to be really brave and you have to be vulnerable. Yeah. And I don't mind because I understand that it doesn't matter which woman I marry in this world. It's not her. It's me. Only I can control it. it. I mean, I decide if I want to stay here or not. But I I knew also, I know this answer because I knew from my first marriage right away what I didn't want. Right. So tell Jennifer who you married. I married a Border Patrol agent. That's what? what I'm telling you. <laughs> Isn't this crazy? So I sneak in at 10 and then at 28, wow. I married a Border Patrol agent. Yes. People always ask, where'd you guys meet? I say, the river. <laughs> she whistled. <laughs> she whistled. I thought she was flirty. <laughs> Just wanted to catch me. 
Two words, trick or treat. That was it. Trick yep. or treat. That's all I said. She wasn't wearing a uniform when I met her. I went to Calexico and I'm from Mexicali, Baja California, the other side of that border. Mm-hmm. And she's at a show and she was very attractive. And I was like, hey, I'm going to go talk to her. And we hit it off and everything was great. And then once we started dating, after I came back the second time, she was like, Yep, I'm a border patrol agent. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was like, all right, good thing I have my residence card. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> so, the, but see, I, I married for the wrong reasons. And, and, and maybe people that can hear this, maybe don't make the mistake I did, was my dad at this point was dying. Mm. In 2008, 2007, my dad was dying of uh, diabetes. And he had very little time left and and i felt cheated because all my other brothers even my younger brothers they all had kids and my dad got to see their grandkids so i felt the sense of urgency and at that time i was so successful i was in three television shows i was i was touring i had the hottest show in hollywood i mean i was making a lot of money and i said i want it all i want my dad to see my my son or my daughter i want i want it all so i went and i i picked this one. Why? Because she's beautiful, because she's smart, because she's strong, because, it, okay, this one. Hmm. That's it. And and it literally was, I, I felt that everything was like that, like, hurry up, hurry up. I got married in 10 months. Wow. And then we moved in. And then she started working for the sheriff's department. And if you know anything about the sheriff's department, they have to run the prisons two years before they can hit the streets. Wow. After the academy. So after six months of being married and she was going through the academy, she started running the household like she ran the prison. Mm. And it's kind of hard for me when I'm like, I'm, I have three TV shows. I bought you a brand new house, a brand new car. And you're going to come and scream at me and tell me what time we have to turn off the lights. Yeah. My own house. I'm okay. Yeah. I don't want to live like this. I'm out. Yeah. Hmm. The, the thing that really pushed me over the edge with the Border Patrol agent was the way she would treat my niece. At this time, my brother had gotten arrested for making meth in his house mm. with his wife. So the daughter was put into the system. Right. And so that's my niece. So me being at home as a comedian, successful, my wife being a sheriff, and we have a, a four-bedroom home, we are ideal. We have no criminal record. Why wouldn't she stay with us? Yeah. So I went and I fought for her, and I brought her home with us so she wouldn't stay in the mm-hmm. system. So I started raising my niece for six months until the mom went to, because once you, this happens, once you're involved in this and you put child in danger, uh, a child in danger, what happens is the system then now tends you to classes and you're on probation. You can't see your child until you complete these mm-hmm. classes. So while my sister-in-law was going through that, I took care of my niece mm-hmm. and my first wife was just so mean to her mm-hmm. in terms of teaching her the way she would teach her, the way she would act around her. And it just gave me a picture of what my future was going to be like. And And I said, this is who she is. And I'm not going to be able to change her because that's who she needs to be to be at the job that she's at. Hmm. Do you Mm -hmm. understand? She needs to be that person, but I cannot live with a person like that. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Think about it. She she has to be mean. Hmm. Mm -hmm. If she's nice in the prisons... Those people take advantage yeah. of her. People look at it as weakness. So for, for eight hours a day, she has to be the toughest bee in that in that sure. prison. Hmm. Because every and she's she would tell me the story. She would say, Man, they they right away, they start sweet uh, sweet talking you and you gotta na- nip it in the bud right yeah. away. You say, What you say? Yeah. You bring him down to the floor, 
and you squeeze his arm and say, say that again. She has to do yeah. that. That is hard to turn it off when you get home. And that yes. was your future. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Well, well, you made you made a choice and you, you got you got out. It's good that you were able to do that. But I wonder, how was it to take care of your niece? Was that was that like early training for being a dad? I don't know. It wasn't that because I was I wasn't so involved. I didn't get to enjoy my niece. It was more like I, I got to take her to school and then she was in school. And then in the afternoon, my wife would take over and she would be studying with her. And then I would have to leave to do shows. Remember, I'm, I'm a comedian. So every night I'm going out, I'm performing. And so she takes over. So during the day, my only obligation was to drop her off at school. And she was five years old, so she was in kinder. So it wasn't not like it wasn't like we really bonded. But when we had an opportunity to be together, it was I could see the way she would treat her. And I would see that the way she was teaching her how to read and the way she would teach her how to do math. And I said, you don't have to scream at her. You understand? She's five. She's, she's going to get it. You can do it fun. I said, we can do it fun. And she says, leave me alone. If you're not going to do it, leave it alone. I'll do it myself. Mm. I was like, ah, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I can. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, and, and, and Jennifer, like what? So when you hear, I mean, this is a really, and I know this is, this is a reality for, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people grow up this way. And my question is, because Richard, you sound like you have perspective on it and like you're you're talking to therapists, you're doing different things, but you sound like you're very aware of what's going on with you. This just my happened. question is well, like what do you bring from those kind of experiences with you that that needs dealing with? Is there anything that that uh, or did you just sort of like this is how we had to live, and so that's how we lived as a kid? Yeah. Do you bring? Do you find any any of that? Because you know people talk a lot about. Trauma that you can bring with you, and I wonder if that if that has found its way. Like, how do you? Where does that sit in you, or does it? Or do you work it out on stage? Uh, you know what? I I, I just started self reflecting, like 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 you're, what you're saying right now, and and taking therapy. It was right after what happened with Franco on on YouTube. I got on a roast battle. Let me tell you the the story behind this whole thing, and that's when it I, I hit rock bottom. Like, this is where I, I started self-reflecting. The things that I'm learning now about myself, me building my relationship with my wife back up, all of this, it, you got to understand, for 20 years, I was a provider. For 20 years, I had a career. For 20 years, I had everything. As I'm coming in from a sold-out show in Guatemala, my manager said, it's over. That's it. Hmm. I was like, fuck. Shit. What do you mean it's over? It's over. It's done. There's no shows. Okay, well... Well, is there any comedy clubs open? Nothing. Not, it, everything is canceled. COVID just canceled mm-hmm. everything. You understand? All my eggs, is, they were on that basket. Mm-hmm. And somebody just took the basket. Right. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, don't worry. What, what do we got? What do we got? Let's regroup. And nothing. We had nothing. We had a, a bank account that kept going away every single month because the bill still came. But I, there was, it was a desperation that I couldn't generate money. I didn't have any way to generate money. So, so what do you do? You buy a bottle of vodka every day and because and, you're home and you can write jokes and you can Zoom your friends and then you just buy a bottle of vodka every day. And for six months, that's what I would do. I would buy a bottle of vodka every day and smoke weed. And, and my wife noticed that and said, OK, you got to get help. OK, so now they gave me antidepressants. I started talking to a therapist. 
all I'm, all I'm doing is taking the antidepressants so my wife's off my back. I stop going to therapy and I keep drinking my bottle of vodka and smoking weed every day. Why? Because I don't know what's going to happen next. None of us did. Mm -hmm. But Franco, Franco, my friend, this is, this is where it hits bottom, where it was like, wow, calls me and says, hey, do you want to be part of this roast? We're doing this thing six months into the pandemic. And I'm like, sure. And I go in there and I realize, wait, tonight there's a show. That means I'm going to buy two bottles of vodka just to be ready. That doesn't mean I stopped drinking. Just because somebody called me six months later, that means, okay, today I'm not going to drink because it's an important show and 8.9 million people are going to see me. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I'm going to go buy another bottle, make sure that I can take the whole night. And that's what I did. I, I got on, on camera and I did a roast battle and I insulted this girl and I called her a bitch and I did all sorts of crazy things. And you got to understand at this time, my career was really focused on Mexico and Latin America. I told you in the beginning of the story, I came back from a sold out show in Guatemala. But now I've destroyed it, I guess. Um, I'm so drunk. I'm passed out. I wake up the next day and I have all these phone calls from everybody and it, and, and it blows up and, and all of a sudden I become a trend. And all of Latin America starts talking about everything that happened on the show and the things that I did and all this. And a friend of mine, Franco, who's the Kevin Hart of Mexico, me and him were like brothers, goes the next day and puts up a video saying we no longer work together and we're no longer friends and we're no longer associated with him. So they all turned their back on me and then my social media numbers went to shit. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's bottom, dude. That's when I was like, shit, now what's left? The only thing I had was fame and I guess money was gone. So now fame is gone too. Hmm. So you rebuild, you, you go to therapy, you take your medication, you stop drinking a bottle of vodka. You, you get brave. You, you, yeah, yeah. You, you lean into it. Yeah. You, you gotta stop because I understood what I was losing. Yeah. And, and I decided, you know what? I can't. And so my entire life, I've always felt like I'm running because everybody else is running. Finally, at, at, at where I am now, these three years set me up and taught me a great lesson where if tomorrow we have a pandemic, I'm straight. I'm not running. I don't run anymore at 44. I walk because I know where I'm going. And as long as I don't stop walking, I'm good. I don't need to worry. People around me are going to freak out. People around me are going to run. And that's when I need to hold myself back and go, no, don't worry. You're good. That's awesome. Okay, now let me tell you the, something that bothers me, and this is where I would like you to help me. It, it's a mistake I understood, and I lived up to it, but it lives in me. Does, does that make yeah. sense? Like, yeah. it, it, there's moments where I go, fuck. Yeah. Like, it's, you still carry it. You're like, God damn. Of course, of course. What did I do this? How do I stop? Well, okay, so let's talk about that. And there, there's a few things. Like, you people can either collapse and get worse and worse and turn on themselves or they can do what you did and they can pick up, pick themselves up, look inward, take responsibility and move forward. Shame is a really interesting emotion because in the right doses, it's incredibly helpful. And everybody, you know, no one likes shame. It's a terrible feeling, but it's a, it, emotions are there to guide us. They're like our emotional GPS system. And so when you feel a healthy amount of shame, that's when you think, oh, who am I? How did I become this? Well, who am I when I look in the mirror? I don't want to be this person because now you're out of harmony with who you want to be. You're out of harmony with the man you want to be. You're out of harmony with your community, the people who, you know, you worked hard to make laugh. And that is an awful feeling, but that feeling is designed to make you go, what am I doing? 
I need to make a choice. I need to make a different choice. Now, toxic shame is when you really go in on yourself, you beat yourself up, you sabotage yourself, you won't forgive yourself, it's relentless, and that is not healthy, and that doesn't help you get back on track where you want to be. So a little bit of shame that that we carry is actually our, is like this little voice from our best self where we just know we're off. And sometimes we can get really off, and a lot of people flew right off during the pandemic and, and are still suffering and struggling. So the truth is what you did was extraordinary. You didn't fall further. You got up, you faced what you did. You were an example to all kinds of people and that takes bravery and that takes courage, right? You want to know, you know what the weirdest part is? Now I teach sexual harassment prevention training, anti-bullying and uh, sexual orientation, making sure that other people don't do this to other people. That's so amazing. And so now you're in line. I've lost 50 pounds. So you see, when you line up with your best self, who you always were, by the way, always, it just got buried under trauma and stuff that happened in your childhood. And fame can be very sneaky that way. And whenever we make decisions in life that are based on fear, they will usually come back and bite us in the ass, usually. When we make decisions based on love and what's good for us and what's good for our family, we tend to do better. And you you came back in alignment with who you are. And you could even argue that sometimes the worst things that happen to us and the worst things in our life, actually like like an orchid, you know, that all the f- leaves fall off and the flower disappears. It's just, it's getting ready to bloom. It sounds so corny, but I don't think you would have done any of those things if you hadn't hit the bottom. Well, no, no, I wouldn't have. I, I, I find myself three times stronger than when I, before the, even the pandemic started. Yeah. Now I feel I'm like I'm telling you now finally in my life I feel like I don't have to run cuz you're in alignment now with the best of you yeah. right When yeah. you're off course your body knows it and that's where addiction comes mm-hmm. in and anger and fear and all of that and what's interesting and you know if people are listening you kind of look back life doesn't just slam you to the ground it gives you lots of hints first right and, and mm-hmm. we choose to ignore them Oh, it's not that. Yeah. Or it's this. But if you look backwards, you can usually see all kinds of times. And eventually it's just it just slaps you in the face and knocks you on the ground until you're like, oh, okay. Now I get it. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Sure. Uh in terms of that friendship, he goes public, he makes that video. Mm-hmm. That hurts because it's still a friend. Of course. And and the, the, the thing that I did, I can see why he felt and it's justified. He's like, you're ruining my social media. You know how many people, you know, I can see mm-hmm. a lot of arguments on his end for him not to be my friend or not want to talk mm-hmm. to me. What do I do with that? Because you, I just lost a friend. So yep. do I ask for forgiveness? Do I just let it go? So there's, it, it, you have to do what you feel. But the first thing you have to do, and so you're obviously not speaking to him at all, right? You're not talking at all. No. The first thing you have to do is forgive him. You, and what you're doing, I can hear that in your voice. You have to come to a place where you send him love, where he did. Oh no, you know, yeah. He did what he needed to do in that moment. Release that so you're not carrying it, because you know being um, anger is a funny emotion too. Because when you're mad at other people, and I don't hear any anger that you have towards your friend, but when you carry anger around like that, it's like a there's a famous quote that anger is like poison. That if you drink it and expect the other person to die from it. 
first yeah. you forgive it hurts you more yeah, than you. of course person you hate because they don't even know you hate exactly <laughs> that's right so and and your best self that part of you now that's doing all that amazing stuff and the you know all the training you're doing and the person you become that person's not going to be angry and bitter they're going to understand okay he did what he had to do so first start with forgiveness and forgiving yourself mm-hmm. by the way and mm-hmm. then when you feel like you've done that and you've worked that through and that's you know, this has all happened in a very short amount of time. Like the pandemic is really still kind of happening to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. So give yourself time to do that and then reach out with either a letter or a, I don't know, email or something and, and expect nothing back. Yeah. You don't want anything back. That's not why you do it. And if you get something back. So, so what it, well, in, in that letter, I mean, do I say I'm sorry? Yeah. I already said I'm sorry. You can say I'm sorry. You can say I understand what you had to do. If it helps, these okay. are the things that I'm doing now in my life. I understand why you took a big stand. I love you. That's okay. it. That's it. That's it. Okay. Yeah. And if he, listen, if he's in a good place and he's in alignment, he'll be able to forgive you also. And if he's got yeah. stuff to work through and he's not ready, it won't happen. Oh, no. I, I feel I feel even bad for him. Like after what happened with me, like his, a, a bunch of stuff happened to him. A lot of things, yeah. like public things. And I'm like... Yeah. So I feel more bad for him yeah. than me. So he may have a lot of work to do before he can get to a place where he comes back. And he may never come back. It, you're not doing it yeah. so he'll come back. You're doing it so no, you can look in the mirror and mm-hmm. be lined up with who you are and who you're becoming. And that's why we do mm-hmm. everything in our lives. Yeah. And I, and I like the fact that I'm not, I don't, I'm not expecting a reply. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I'm done. Yeah. Like that was yeah. it. And when he's ready, he knows how I feel. Yeah. But in the meantime, you're moving forward. And when you move, when oh, you yeah. move forward, it actually helps everybody around you. Everybody around you feels yeah. it, senses it, and can, can act differently, gives them opportunity to act differently. Oh, yeah. I became the stinky kid in the, in the, in the plate ground. Nobody wanted to hang out with me <laughs> after that. Nobody wanted to take a picture with yeah. me. Oh, my God. Now, when you go on stage and you perform, because you had it taken away from you, how does it feel and how do, how has it changed your uh, performing if at all i uh, i don't i don't talk about what's going on in society i don't talk about in my set in my material all i do now is i found a fountain of gold that's called my life mm-hmm. and i grab scenarios and things that happen in my life and i tell my life stories on stage now in a very comical way now if they're offended with my life, I'm sorry. Go get your own mm-hmm. life. This is just what happened to me. I'm not telling you this happened to you, and I'm not telling you this happened to your family. I'm telling you this is what happened to me. So do not get offended what happened with me. I cannot change what happened. I love that. That's, that's it. And that's why nobody gets offended. Why are you offended at what happened to me? Yeah. I didn't I didn't tell my dad to sell crack. He did it. You understand? But I got, I'm going to talk about yep. it. Why are you offended? Yeah, that's alignment. You're, you're speaking yes. your truth, what's real for you. There's going to be people who hear such important things in your comedy. I mean, Ed and I talk about mm-hmm. all the time that comedy is literally the most healing thing. And that's art. That's that's yeah. art. That's the real art of comedy is is taking what's really going on with you and being mm-hmm. brave enough to share it and then make comedy out of it. I mean, that's the, that's yeah. the most healing thing anybody can do. And the stuff that you're talking about that happened to you is, you know, some pretty intense stuff, mm-hmm. but to make comedy from it, that, that yeah. is, you're really, that's, that's a hero. That's what, that's what a hero does. It's weird because it, my, my brothers noticed that they said, 
do you notice that your first hour, your entire first hour that you wrote after the whole pandemic, and it's all personal stories, is that everybody involved in those stories are dead, including your ex-wife? Wow. I was like, wow, I didn't even see it that way. He says, You've, you really are not going to offend anybody with this special. They're dead already. Wow. Wow. Everybody's dead. Your ex-wife is oh. dead. My dad is dead. Uncle Hugo's dead. Uncle Ricky's dead. Mom is alive. So what I did is I did an interview with my mom hmm. because I wanted this to be on record. It's not just me telling you lies. So my mom sat down in the chair and we interviewed her and she spilled the beans, man. She told the whole story, how we got started, where we sold crack, wow. all that stuff. That's amazing. Hmm. And she ultimately made the decision to get you out of there, too. Yeah, she's the one that pulled us out. After that second drive-by, she was like, nope, nope. You can Not my money, family. you can do whatever you want. Yeah. You know, when you, when you film uh, your comedy special, and maybe you've already done this, but I'd love to see a comedy special about your life. It's the wonder you're on crack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, people use that line a lot on crack. That was like something that was used years yeah. ago. But yeah. in your case, it's actually true. But I, 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 I see a special where you you do stand up and then we keep cutting away. We cut away to interviews with your mom. We cut away to you in your old neighborhood. If you, if you go to my TikTok at Richard Comedy, you'll see like I went back to my neighborhood. Yeah. And I recorded the house and I told the neighbor, I asked him a question. I said, the inside of that wall it's made out of metal isn't it he says how do you know because my dad built that what? it was the first time we got shot that's why he built that metal wall right mm -hmm. there he's like how do you know that stucco outside he says i know my dad built yeah. it and on the back there's this and then he's like how do you know he says, that's where we hit the drugs right here and he was like wow so i i gave a little tour to everybody when i lived in compton the crack house and and the school where i where i got caught with $300 <laughs> and my dad thought I snitched on him. Oh, that's, a, that's another story. That's for another Wow. <laughs> well, this is a light. This is, this is everything, but you talking about this on stage and also the work that you're doing with sexual harassment and the work that you're doing with, you know, counseling other people and helping them, especially men, I would think. And it came from a fan, you know what I mean? They, they, they hit you up and says, I know who you are. This is not you. And from there, the, when I went, took the class, she said, you told your story so funny, you should teach this class. That's awesome. And I said, no, I'm not going to teach this class. She said, you should. What are you doing right now? I said, nothing. Then why don't you come and work here and teach sexual harassment during the day? You're not doing comedy. The state of California now requires it. I was like, all right. And I tried it. And, and he's like, dude, we've never seen people line up to go see a sexual harassment <laughs> prevention. That's amazing. It's, 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 you don't it's understand. I show up to these companies and the HR department gets in a line because they want pictures. Yeah. Mm. They saw me at the Microsoft Ooh. Theater and they can't believe it. And that's the guy that's doing the sexual harassment prevention training. Comedy is the greatest healer and the greatest teacher. It really is. It is. It is. They, they, he says, they, I've never seen my employees line up. I said, go back to your, you still have five minutes. I want to sit in the front. They're like, I want to sit in the front. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I want to touch on one thing too, which you talked about fatherhood and being a dad and people have two choices when they have kids. They either repeat the cycle, they repeat the pattern mm -hmm. or they do the exact opposite. And that takes mm -hmm. bravery. It takes knowing who you really are under all that, under all that trauma, under all of it is knowing who you are. Yeah, but it also takes therapy. <laughs> it takes therapy. So, so when that happened, I, I started taking medication. And now I, I talk to my therapist. I talk to my doctor. I said, I, I want to get off of it now. Mm -hmm. I feel like I, I can handle life without it. Great. And I want to try it. 
Yeah, it's awesome. It, I, I think of it like it's almost like wearing a life jacket, a life preserver, right? It just kind of keeps you afloat. And then mm-hmm. when you learn your strategies and you learn new ways of thinking and you and you learn new behaviors, then you can then you can swim without it. Yeah, this is an amazing story. You're going to come back. Uh, we're going to visit with you Powerful again. Interview. Thank you so much. <laughs> wow. Your your stories, your life. I mean. This has really been interesting, and it's been great, and it's going to help a lot of people. People are going to listen, and they're going to, you know, I'm learning. I'm learning a lot, and uh, I'm seeing why it's why it's great to be a comedian, and that's why I'm proud when I hear people like you talking about this. It's a great thing to be, and I want to take your class, even though I'm not involved in sexual harassment so much. Uh, I'll still come down. I'd like to do a guest set. I think that's fantastic. I, I think it's so great. And talking about medication and getting getting all you know, not some people, you know, what, what if you need medication, you need a medication. You you take care of yourself. It's part of the way you take care of yourself. That's it. But you but can also not, get yeah. off. You can also there the, you have to see what you need. You have to see how you do it. This is how you're doing it. Tell them where they can go and where they can find um where they can watch you and where they can watch your latest stuff. Where do they go? Awesome. So right now, for some reason, well, not not for some reason, my brother Teddy took over my account on TikTok and he's putting up all my material. So if you want to see the last 20 years of my life combined in TikToks of one minute, go to my TikTok and it's at Richard Comedy. Let me just double check. Or or you go at Richard Comedy everywhere or, or Richard Via Comedy, just Richard Via. You can Google it. You'll find me. But yeah, man, um, you want to see all my material there. And if 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 you have a business, listen, in the state of California, if you have a business and you have six or more employees, you need to provide this training. But you need to do it in an engaging way. You understand? I don't want people just going through this and then check the box. I saw a video. I'm good. No, you can have fun. You can have a conversation with your employees. And you'd be surprised as a business owner when I do these presentations and I open that line of communication with their employees the boss, the guys of the companies will pull me to the side and say, I never knew any of that. Hmm. I never even took the time to talk to them. Thank you. Wow. He says, you don't know how much I learned today just listening to the questions that we're asking you. Hmm. Because I do it in Spanish and English. The owners are like, wow, thanks, man. Thanks for, for starting that conversation up. We needed to have it. So Bridge Training Consultants, you can find me there or just Send me an email. We'll talk. Bridge Training Consultants. Okay. Rich, Richard, yes. I cannot thank you enough. I'm thank so you, happy to meet you. Oh, me too. Thank you. And, and Jennifer, thank you very much for your advice. Oh, I, I am going to do that. And, I, and I, I'm feeling even better now just thinking that there is a solution awesome. where I can just do that and, and, and take it off my plate now. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad. That's great. Go to ConnectedParenting.com where you can find out so many different skills, books, media, all kinds of life tools that you can use for yourself, for your family, for self-parenting. That's Jennifer Kalari's organization. It's called ConnectedParenting.com. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and uh, look for the good. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V 
on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.